All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. This is your host, Josh Patterson, and today I am joined with my new, uh, with my new friend, by my new friend, <laughs> Jeffrey Pugh. Jeffrey, how's it going? It's going great. It's warm outside, just my kind of weather. Ah, uh, yes, I've... I'm not a winter person, although uh, ice hockey is my favorite sport, so I like the cold sometimes, but... I've been very excited that uh, the weather is getting warm. You know, I can start going to the beach, being outside more, these kind of things. So, drinking a good, tasty brew. Oh, of course, always. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> As I think some of the uh, maybe previous episodes, especially ones with uh, with Trip, might. Um, Lend people, you know, a look into that. So, <laughs> so as a brewer, you might appreciate this. Um, okay. In Luther's in Luther's writings, um, he is writing about the power of the Word of God, and at one point he says, "The Word of God did its work while Philip Amsdorf and I were drinking good Wittenberg beer." <laughs> so, yes, good deal. I think. Uh, I don't know. Beer beer pairs well with theology, for at least in my in my experience. It yeah, it can. <laughs> There's also I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, forget what what culture this comes from, but <clears throat> whenever they would like debate like politics, for example, they would have the argument when they were sober, and then have the same argument when they were inebriated. And if you could defend your position while you're inebriated then like you know it's a good argument i think uh when theology is done that way you know and you can defend an argument well when you're inebriated that's kind of a a sign that you at least have you know know what you're talking about or like actually believe what you're saying (laughs) i don't know yeah it's not just in the head it's in the heart too (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) oh man well so Today, Jeffrey, I wanted to have you on to talk about um, a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Perhaps you've heard of him. Um, But before we talk about uh, Bonhoeffer, 
uh, can we just get to know you a little bit? Like for listeners who might not be familiar with uh, yourself or your work, um, can you just, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and the the kind of things you find yourself doing? Well, um, I'm recently retired from uh, being college professor for 36 years, uh, taught at Elon University uh, down in North Carolina. Um, but uh, how I got to that point uh, was a part of a long journey that started with a, um, how shall I say this, a born-again experience on March the 10th, 1972, um, and at which time uh, I saw it as a, a the ultimate conversion, but it was, I'm going to say now later on in my life, it was one in a series of conversionary moments. But that started me on a path through a kind of um, charismatic Pentecostal communities, um, uh, early uh, early journey in a group called the Children of God, which some people would f- refer to as a cult, but let's go with the dissenting religious movement. Um, and at each stage in this journey, I would bump up against a kind of... Um, exercise of authority that just rubbed me the wrong way. It did not seem to be freeing to me. It, it seemed to be uh, suffocating. So I moved out of the Pentecostal charismatic community and, and into a more evangelical community. And then eventually I moved uh, back into the Methodist church that I had left when I was 16 or so. Um, I left the church because there were so many hypocrites in it. Uh, and I came back because I realized they had room for one more. So, um, and in that, uh, I, I had this uh, weird moment when I was driving trucks for a living and um, and realized that I was supposed to be teaching college. And since I'd been um, told never to come back to my college or I'd be arrested for trespassing, um, I I had to... Uh, undergo a few uh, hoops and got back into that, uh, went back to college, um, was actually given a parish as a, as a Methodist, United Methodist minister for student, student parish for five years, two years in college, three years in seminary. And um, in that time, then I went on to do the PhD at uh, Drew University um, and uh, theological and religious studies. But my main emphasis was on the Reformation era and um, Karl Barth and Friedrich Schleimacher. And in the process of studying Barth, you can't study him and not come across the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I had encountered Bonhoeffer in college um, when uh, the college chaplain was teaching a class and I took it and he gave me these writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer from prison. Um, letters and papers from prison. And uh, I read those and I was kind of intrigued. And I was uh, as intrigued by Bonhoeffer's story um, because, you know, at a certain point, we're looking for heroes, right? Um, you know, and, and, and one of the reasons that I sort of fell into Bart was not just that I had a, um, a student of Bart's uh, as, a, as my professor at Wesley Seminary, uh, John Gotze had actually studied with Karl Barton and Basil Basel. Um, but I, I had um, I had encountered uh, both of these theologians as theologians of resistance. And that that mattered to me. 
Um, and so, you know, I guess you could say that through the process or through the journey or through the pilgrimage of moving through from Pentecostal evangelical um, bizarreness in some ways, I try to, I try to appreciate where people are in their journeys and there are some people that are there. Um, so I don't want to denigrate that. But for me, it was a it was a space where I wasn't entirely comfortable. So in that in that pilgrimage or journey, then I, I moved on to studying um, German theologians of resistance. And um, then later on in my college teaching career, I, I branched out into a lot of different things. Religion and science became one of my sort of interesting ideas, Jewish Christian relations. Um, interfaith stuff became another one of my the areas that I worked on and um, toward the latter end of my career I really became interested in consciousness um, and and religion and God kind of stuff but that can be um, how do I want to say this if you're not careful intellectual masturbation um, you're just you know it's good for you but maybe it's not good for anybody else you know um, and I like to talk about it with people, but, you know, conscious of the fact that how does this change the world? So one of the things that I, I kept returning to Bonhoeffer and, and then later on sort of made him a particular interest of mine was the fact that Bonhoeffer was especially concerned about the real. Um, you know, he was he was not as concerned about theory so much i mean he had, he wrote two brilliant works on theory his first two dissertations but um but in his life his theology was marked by an encounter with the real how does theology engage with what reality is and and how do we then understand that reality so so that that sort of was the journey that led me to the study of bonhoeffer and at first, I guess it was more on the side of maybe a little bit of hero worship. Um, but then the more, I, you know, and oh, the confessing church, they were the only ones that stood against the Nazis. Yay. And then later on uh, in my studies, I realized that the story of the confessing church is not all white hats and, and resolute steadfastness. There was a collapse of the confessing church um, over. Uh, the 30s, and and they still had uh, anti-Semitism um, as a part of their. They were more in, in more into institutional maintenance, I think, in some ways. Um, some of your listeners may think that's a little harsh on my point, but there are good writings out there, the Holy Reich, um, but uh, and other books um, that will. Um, that go pretty deep into the faults and the failures of the confessing church. So during that time, then I became to identify more with Bonhoeffer out of my own sense of failures and, and out of my own sense of where are the places that I have missed it. And, um, but, but of all of that, probably I was most taken with the, the, the initial writings that I was exposed to letters and papers from prison. Maybe that's enough. I mean, <laughs> no, that's good. That's perfect. Um, I think it's, you know, important how I think story um, is really important. And, you know, for people to hear story and then see 
kind of how and why, um, you know, you take interest in certain things. I think just, uh, I don't know. I like story. So I'm here, I'm here for it. But uh, in regard to story, I guess my, my interactions with Bonhoeffer thus far have been, um, I'm pretty sure I read life together in college, uh, maybe freshman year. So I'd, um, you know, have vague remembrances of that. Um, I have read parts of uh, discipleship or the cost of discipleship. I've seen it published as as both both titles. Um, but then I kind of uh, it got turned off to Bonhoeffer because, uh, like, the first church that I worked in, um, I really had a shitty experience and I did not like it. And um, the head pastor that I worked for. Uh, was there was a period of time when he was reading that um, Metaxas book on Bonhoeffer. And so I was like, mm, I don't really want anything to do with Bonhoeffer if this guy's into him. Um, and so I know that there's controversy around uh, Metaxas's writings and some would say uh, co-opting of uh, Bonhoeffer. Um, but then I saw back during COVID or shut, uh, when, when we were in lockdown, that uh, trip was doing a class on Bonhoeffer. And I was like, well, that's weird. Um, but then when I saw it come up again, I was like, hmm, okay, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something here. So uh, I've enjoyed listening to you and Trip uh, talk um, about Bonhoeffer kind of, you know, um, amping up for this uh, class, which I think is called uh, Bonhoeffer and the Future of Faith. Um, yeah. Or something. Yeah. And so I'll be sure to link that in the, the show notes. Um, you know, because part of why I wanted to talk to you is to help promote that class. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that that you and Trip and uh, company can save me from the Metaxas version of <laughs> of Bonhoeffer. Uh, so yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to the class and yeah. <laughs> so so it's interesting you I mean you bring that up because here's the thing about Bonhoeffer, he's like a spiritual Rorschach test. I mean, and, um, you know, maybe a lot of your listeners, uh, this may not be the first time they've encountered this idea, but often our understanding or our theologies are, are sometimes projections of our own fears and desires and wants rather than a reflection of something that might actually be operating there. And later on in this podcast, bring me back to this idea, because I think that's what shows up in Bonhoeffer. Um, especially in the letters and papers from prison as he's exploring this idea. But I want to go back to this notion that the fact of the matter is, is that there are many Bonhoeffers. Um, and like I say, a spiritual Rorschach test. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say that from my college reading to the old man reading now, Bonhoeffer has gotten incredibly more nuanced um, and I want to say rich. So if you're an evangelical, for instance, uh, your Bonhoeffer is most likely to be situated in discipleship and life together. Um, you know, in those two works, Bonhoeffer speaking in a very clear and distinct voice, um, evangelicals resonate with this us against the world kind of thing, you know, in discipleship. There's this image where Bonhoeffer says that disciples are like, you know, passengers on a train that is going through um, enemy territory. Um, so, you know, it's it's not that they're 
out there in enemy territory. It's that they're sequestered, safe in this train car, and they're moving through this foreign land, so to speak. Um, so you can kind of see where evangelicals who are afraid of the world are Christians who are afraid of the world are are or see the world as a thing to be sort of opposed to um, would find a home and, and life together and, and discipleship. Those writings emerge from Bonhoeffer's time when he's teaching at the seminary in exile in Finkenwalde. He comes back from London, um, you know, because he's asked to start this new seminary that's going to be a seminary of the confessing church, um, the church that opposes Hitler the church that opposes the German Christians, the Deutsche Christian. Um, and so he is kind of writing this as he's working out um, what does theological education look like in the midst of Nazis, right? So you can kind of have sympathy with the fact that he wants to, to sort of, things seem very stark at that point. But uh, oftentimes, Josh, what's not... Um, mentioned is that when he was in London uh, pastoring um, Lutheran congregations, he did uh, tours of Anglo-Catholic monasteries and communities and was really fascinated with monastery life, um, with a kind of communal life where, um, how do I want to put it, the mysteries were both protected and honored, uh, as it were. And um, so I think there's some of that actually that is uh, being worked out by him, not only just in those books, but in the way that life at Finkenwalde was arranged. And life together um, emerged out of this attempt to have a kind of um, church within a church, ecclesiola and ecclesia um, of of special people that were really hardcore committed um, to 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 practicing certain disciplines. So whether that meant observing the sort of um, seasons of the day with Compline or Vespers or whether it, you know, it meant uh, rigorous prayer or whatever, Bonhoeffer was sort of moving through that particular stage of his life. And so he does speak with a very sure and certain voice. And you can kind of understand why if you're a Christian that that needs authority, if you're a Christian that um, you, you sort of just want the authority to tell you what to do, that those those writings, you know, Bonhoeffer's very, you know, this is what we've got to do. And 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 they're moving, they're stirring writings, right? You know. Christ comes, bid us to die, you know, and and um, so you can kind of see where those would be very attractive. Let me just stop there. I, I don't want to keep on running my mouth and not have you jump in with a question or two. Yeah, no worries. Um, I think all the the background is is super helpful because, um, like I, I said when we when we were texting, I am no Bonhoeffer scholar, nor am I going to pretend to be. <laughs> um, but I'm just like deeply interested in in uh, why you know how Bonhoeffer is, is speaking to uh, society today. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting because I I tried so I went back and I sat down and started reading uh, discipleship again, um, 
And like, I haven't read anything like that in quite some time. <laughs> and so it was interesting reading. And I know, um, because he, I mean, that the first chapter in discipleship is just like, boom, like, you know, he doesn't pull punches. He's, he's there and in, in your face. And um, yeah, I don't know. I know he's been kind of critiqued as like, uh, what, like promoting martyrdom or something like that. Um, but I, I don't know. I think also part of what's interesting to me, and this is something I wanted to ask about, um, has to do with like, I, I have like a pretty strong ethic of nonviolence. Um, and I think Bonhoeffer, unless I'm wrong, Bonhoeffer seems to also have some kind of nonviolent ethic, right? But then maybe um, starts to wrestle and challenge with that kind of ethic when like Hitler <laughs> becomes a thing. Um, Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, the beginning of discipleship, it, he's very much like, we love our enemies. You know, that means uh, dying, not being willing to kill them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm just, I guess I'm kind of interested in that. Was there a shift in Bonhoeffer in that regard with Hitler or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So good question. Um, and, and, I'm going to answer that question directly. Now I want to go back to the train of thinking that I was doing about many Bonhoeffers, because this kind of attaches to that, right? You know, the Bonhoeffer that we see in, in 1935, um, or even in 1933, um, is not that much different than the Bonhoeffer that we see toward the end of his life. Um, but the circumstances of his environment have changed significantly. So um, in, in your question, he there are places in his earlier writings where he has this nonviolent ethic. He has addresses that he gives to sort of European ecumenical groups and, and youth conferences and stuff in Denmark and other places. And, you know, it's it's very much nonviolent. Um, and and yet. And, and here's the tricky part for us. Bonhoeffer had a significant um, commitment to reality. What was the reality within which he was dealing? Um, what was the reality within which he is living? Um, so it's not that he's a relativist or a situational ethic uh, ethicist, but it, it it is that depending on the reality that you find yourself in, the reality of Christ might look very different. Okay. And that's really hard for people, right? Because they, they want the one Christ, Jesus Christ, the same today and, you know, forever, yesterday, today, and forever. So they want that one solid thing that they can hang on to. Um, but Bonhoeffer was able to understand that solidity is a hard thing to come by in life. Um, and so we we sort of try to interpret life, you know, where we find it. And then how is Christ the center of that life? So um, and I'm going to get to your question here in a minute because um, you can see I'm nibbling around the edges. Um, at some point, um, Bonhoeffer makes a shift to um, becoming part of the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. Um, he's not there to hold the gun or anything, but he is there working with people in uh, Avar, German intelligence, to get messages out to other places in Europe 
to sort of send out feelers about, well, what happens if this succeeds? What happened if the plot to overthrow Hitler succeeds? Will you allow us to take care of this? You know, what, are you going to just come in and level us for what we've done? So it's not that Bonhoeffer, you know, is sort of embracing violence, but he has moved into the conspiracy. Now, has is he a different Bonhoeffer than the one in discipleship? Um, and, you know, even in the Bonhoeffer scholarly circles, this gets hotly debated. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is there's more continuity than discontinuity. Um, Christ, he always sort of struggles with what the Christological center is for him. But this, this move is accompanied by the fact that the church collapses, absolutely and totally collapses. You know, in 1933, um, about a third of the Germans were totally on board with Hitler, um, German Christians, Catholic and Protestant. About a third were absolutely opposed to Hitler. And about a third were like, you know, just give us our cultural Christianity and just let us, you know, live our lives. Um, and what happens in 1933 is that, you know, you, you hear about, about the rise of the confessing church and and then the Barman Declaration that's written by Karl Barth over an afternoon, I think, of a couple of cigars and a glass of brandy. And um, and uh, now Bonhoeffer wasn't there, by the way, even though Metaxas places him at the Barman Conference. But um, but what you do what you do get is an absolute total collapse after this initial sort of resistance to Hitler. Um, Hitler's smart enough to know that if he can control the powers of, of the ecclesiastical powers of the bishop, uh, the people who give people the jobs in the churches, uh, he can do a lot to diffuse. But but more than diffusing a kind of heroic stance, um, as, as the 30s wore on, what you found out is that more of those Christians were dedicated to a cultural Christianity um, that was comfortable with anti-Semitism. And so you find them going into the armed forces. They wanted to be patriotic, um, even though it was Hitler at the, at the wheel. Um, and you find Bonhoeffer increasingly out on the margins. Um, he's, he's not welcomed in the church uh, in very few spaces. Um, there's not a lot of... Um, you know, we want you to um, be the leader here. Uh, he he becomes marginalized within the confessing church, not only the Lutheran church, but the confessing church. And so he is struggling. Where is his community? And if his community is not doing anything about Hitler, and he knows the danger that Hitler represents, how is he going to respond to that? And he finds the only community, um, sorry, he finds the only community that that will accept him. And that's the community that his in-laws um, are part of, which is the German intelligence section uh, and those people working in that section that were opposed to Hitler and wanted to overthrow him. Now, these are not great liberal, you know, liberators or anything like that. 
they wanted to protect Germany and Germany's privileges as well. Um, but that's the place where Bonhoeffer found himself. And, and so let's go to this sort of other evangelical side that, that loves Bonhoeffer. Because the other, the dark side of evangelicalism, loves Bonhoeffer because he was willing to kill the tyrant. Right? You know, okay, this guy's willing to kill the tyrant. He's willing to kill Hitler. And, and therefore, that gives us license to kill the tyrant. Right? So uh, if I'm William Hill, I can go out and kill the abortion doctor. Um, you know, so you had this these events, you know, early, uh, earlier in our history where people saying they were inspired by Bonhoeffer went out to kill abortion doctors because they were killing babies. Um, well, if you go back and you take a close look at Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer never really justifies himself. You know, he says in a certain sense, there, there can, the reality of the situation could be so severe that Christians must take upon themselves the sins of the world. So he never justifies it. He says, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing a lot, to enter into this moment of conspiracy means that I am taking upon the sin of my nation upon myself. You know, it's a Christological move, right? Um, it's to bear the sins of your nation and to take the penalty. For those sins and he he never says he never sees himself as heroic he says this is just the duty um the vicarious sort of uh movement into this suffering that that i am um that i'm called to because of the reality of the, this the reality of the situation is so stark right um, so there's there's no triumphalism, you know, in his move into the conspiracy. It 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 is it is a painful moment in his life um, because he knows he knows he's betraying a lot of things that he had believed in before. But the reality of the situation was such that rather than hang on to any kind of doctrinal purity or ethical purity, he's willing to move into a situation where he makes himself responsible for the sin of his nation and to take that sin upon himself and try to do something to remove it. And by this point, he does know what's because his brother's brother-in-law's in, in uh, uh, German intelligence. He does know what's happening in the camps. He does know what's happening to Jews. So there is a certain sense in which, although his history with, um, Judaism and anti-Semitism is kind of a mixed thing. Um, we can't we can't say that the suffering of the innocent um, was not a part of the equation of his move into the the, the conspiracy. Hmm. I'll, I'll stop there. No, that that's good. I love the the nuance and the complexity um, of that situation. Um, I don't know. That's a much better story than, than, than just the uh, the black and white, you know, kill the tyrant kind of thing. Um, and I think I don't know. That's interesting because that that kind of line of thinking is like unsettles me um, in the sense that's like, you know, I have my own uh, ethical purities or, or doctrinal beliefs or something like that. 
Um, but in the face of things, you know, um, there's see happening like within our own country or like the, you know, wars going on, whatever. Um, yeah. Like that, that question of like, it's almost like pragmatism where, like, where does that come into play? Like kind of, I had a conversation with Trip recently and, um, I asked him <laughs> if uh, Jesus showed up in front of him, uh, what, like physically, what, what question would he want to ask? And then Trip was like, well, do you, am I asking the historic Jesus or am I asking, you know, talking about like there isn't Christ, which one? Um, but essentially his answer was he wanted to ask Jesus, like, when did the pragmatism just become annoying? Like, when is the whole, uh, like leaven and bread kind of thing? When does that just become annoying to the point where it's like, okay, we have to like, come on. <laughs> and so I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and to see or at least hear about Bonhoeffer wrestling with that, especially in um, the light of someone like Adolf Hitler and and the mass genocide um, that he was trying to carry out and did <laughs> carry out. Um, it's just really interesting that it's it's unsettling, I think, in a good way. Um, it just it, has, yeah, has me thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it absolutely is unsettling. I mean, there's no way we can make Bonhoeffer uh, an Anabaptist, right? I mean, he's not going to be a Mennonite, um, even though in some of these addresses to the European Youth Conferences and places in discipleship and, and life together, you, you know, you see this kind of clear voice and, and, and uh, preference for nonviolence. But then in ethics, you know, he's writing this in exile um, from the church. Uh, he's writing this from exile from Berlin. Um, part of ethics is written in a monastery uh, in the, um, southern Germany. Um, he's, he's struggling with what, what does reality mean? How, how am I supposed to deal with the crisis situation in which I find myself now? And um, and you see that the sort of the beginnings of that struggle with him, that it it's and it is a struggle. And it and that's why you you had a word there I like unsettling. So it's unsettling for me. Right. It was unsettling for me um, from that early moment of, oh, Bonhoeffer's heroic to Bonhoeffer's a human being that struggles with everything that I struggle with. And, and he's just trying to work it out in the worst possible situation. Um, and that then calls me to ask rigorously, so what would I do in that situation? How would I respond to that situation? Um, and so, you know, I, Trip and I were going, uh, we did a podcast a couple of days ago about five reasons to go Bonhoeffer um, for sort of this class that we're going to be doing in May, in June. And um, I, I said to Tripp, I said, right now, reality is confronting me. Reality is the widow of the husband and, and the mother of the dead children in Bucha, Bucha Ukraine. And, and she's asking me, what is Jesus? What is Jesus here? What is Jesus now? Where is Christ now in this? And I said, that's where I get confronted and challenged all the damn time uh, with my pacifism. You know, because I'm, I'm sort of, and, and 
let me just say that I sort of resonated well uh, throughout a lot of my career with Stanley Stanley Hauerbach, um in his writings. And Stan's a friend. Uh, he blurbs my books, and I love conversations with him, and he causes me to think too. But um, I had come to an Anabaptist perspective, uh, r- like right out of the gate, um, when I first had that conversionary moment. That seemed, you know, part parcel of Christianity. You take Scripture seriously, you know. And but but what Bonhoeffer continually confronts me with is, what will you do with the victims of the state? How will you protect the victims of the state? And in 1933, he has this address, and it's, um, you know, one of the ways that we deal with the victims of the state is to try to put a spoke in the wheel of the hub so that the state can't function, you know? Well, you know, when you're, when you're faced with an autocratic fascist state, um, how does Christianity respond? And quite frankly, um, we're in a similar situation to Bonhoeffer in that the church is so weak, it, it really has no voice in, in responding to the state. There is no effective church voice that can say, stop. The Pope can't even, you know, get, you know, and the patriarchs of or the patriarch of Russia is out there blessing the bombs that are falling on other Christians in Ukraine. So that's a Christianity that that is, uh, how do I want to say this, uh, demonic. Um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and maybe this will help shift us to the another part of the conversation. Um, a Christianity of religion, um, you know, a religious Christianity. Um, so let me just go ahead and say that not only do evangelicals find a Bonhoeffer, but you also had mainstream Christians find a Bonhoeffer they were comfortable with. You had liberation theologians in the 70s in Latin America refer to Bonhoeffer's, we have now come to see the events of history from below. Um, He writes this in what was a thing called 10 Years After, now in the uh, letters and papers from prison, I think the title is Prologue. But but we have now come to see the great events of world history from the position of the outcast, the persecuted, the dispossessed. So they found a place in Bonhoeffer. You know, there everybody can find a place in Bonhoeffer because he's not wedded to one singular doctrinal position or understanding. What he seems to be wedded to or or seems to be committed to is an understanding of reality viewed through the lens of Christ. And not the Christ of doctrine, but. Who is Jesus Christ for us today, right here, right now in the situation that I find myself? And that that becomes a, you know, that becomes an overwhelming thing. And so in this, Bonhoeffer's theology is, you know, says that the beyond is not transcendent, that the, God is not omnipotent. God is all these trend, all these words we use. That's not God. God is 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 the presence of the beyond in the here and the now, right? 
That's, you know, you think about it, it's lovely phrasing, you know, because he doesn't even care about salvation. He said the cost, the issue of individual salvation is meaningless for us. Who cares? That's God's affair. He says, but what is meaningful for us is in what way does is Christ manifested in, in the world now? In what way is the beyond that Christ mediates us? And, and this is a beyond where grace overcomes retribution, right? Where reconciliation uh, is a more powerful force than killing my enemy. You know, that beyond, that vision of God that, that is embodied in Christ is for Bonhoeffer is what is meant to be present in the here and the now. How can I love God whom I cannot see if I do not love my brother whom I can? Right? Yeah, I love that. Um, <laughs> it plays into to some of my sensibilities too that, hmm. Yeah, it's because then, I mean, even like today, when I think about uh, the church, like you were saying, I don't often have super nice things to say. Um, <laughs> sometimes I do. Uh, but it, it seems like we're in a situation like you're saying, where now the, the voice of the church is almost uh, it's like. It doesn't really exist. I mean, kind of, not not in any meaningful way, at least. Like I see it existing maybe in like the culture war kind of stuff, right? And then you have like certain uh Christian traditions wedding themselves to specific political affiliation. Um, you know, it happens on both sides. I don't want to just pick on one. Um, but I mean, I think like it seems it seems today that that or maybe I I I'll try to ask this as a question instead. But like with the state of how the church is engaging with culture and also is blessing uh, ridiculous things that seem to fly in the face of, you know, everything that I was taught about Jesus growing up um, and with somebody like Bonhoeffer, who is this, you know, theologian of resistance, um, as you kind of talked about him, how do you see us, you know, to, how, how do we see Bonhoeffer? today critiquing what is happening um within like american christianity where people are walking away in droves uh more people than not have really shitty experiences like i did uh we have you know certain brands of christianity wedding themselves to the power and violence of the state uh like i guess this is maybe why why bonhoeffer matters today yes uh, kind of similar situation. Um, that's not much of a question, more of a prompt. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, but no, but I mean, it's it's good because this is one of the reasons that I was so taken with Bonhoeffer and Bart at the beginning is that they were willing to sit, to step back and critique a church that had become captured by nationalism. A church that had become captured by uh, German nationalism, you know. So there were a lot of people in Germany that when the belt buckles for the Nazi uniforms had got me uns, God with us, were perfectly fine with that. It's on the freaking belt buckle. 
you know, right there, God is on our side. And Bonhoeffer and Bart were saying, is God? Is God really on your side? Um, and so, you know, there was that. And, you know, once I had this conversionary moment that I talked about earlier in the podcast, um, you know, I sort of moved through this um, space of uh, right wing being right wing, sort of right to the right of Attila the Hun. Um, you know, obviously colored by a particular reading of Hebrew scripture, uh, what, what Christians call Old Testament. Um, and then when I started to come out of that, one of the things that Bart and Bonhoeffer freed me from was having to see the nation as connected to the providence of God. And, and this is what, see, uh, a lot of people don't understand about Hitler is that Hitler had a theology and his theology was providence with a capital P. Now, if you see God as working in history in just such a way that whatever happens is God's will, then if you're able to take over the structures of power, you can argue to Christians, I, this is not me. How could I have succeeded unless God were behind this? Well, God didn't have anything to do with that shit. I mean, you know, you projected God onto your agenda. Um, so, you know, uh, Bonhoeffer gave me clear eyes to understand that that was a dynamic that, was, that, that is continually happening in the Christian church. And the more the Christian church does that, um, the less um, integrity they possess for people who are actually wanting a vibrant faith and, and a faith not connected to the state. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I mean, all this sort of business that we're seeing now where the state is trying to connect religion back into itself, um, that's a... That's a profane Christianity and probably a profane state too, but, but it certainly is a profane Christianity. And um, so it really sort of helped me sort of make some distinctions about theology. Um, and I, you know, I, I heard in evangelicalism, a lot of theologies of providence well, God works in history. If this thing happens, it's because God wanted it to, because God is all powerful. And, and then it's, it's very easy from that theology to justify whatever it is that you want to do um, and put it, in, put it in the name of God. And Bonhoeffer was, and Bart, uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, both of them and others were calling that out, out of the gate, right? In 1933, right? When Hitler assumes power, Bart's in a radio address the next day with a uh, talking about the Fuhrer principle and how we have to beware of the autocratic leader. Um, but but Hitler had a theology, and let me tell you, he preached his theology in his speeches, and and he said that he was going to make Germany great again, and that he was going to burn out the liberal excess of theater and and you know degenerate art and. He he was a culture warrior, and and he manipulated populations by sort of trying to turn them against what degenerate culture, and same things happening now, right? 
you know, except what gets labeled as degenerate culture is just people that have different ways of living. You know, I mean, they may not be degenerate at all. They may be, I don't know, but that's within the person. That's not their art or, you know, I mean, you know, where does that, you know, how do we make that assessment about another human being? I'm not willing to do it on the basis of their writing or their art or maybe even their politics. I have to encounter the person themselves and and understand that. I'm going to go ahead and stop. Yeah, I feel no, sometimes I, like I'm talking too much. So. <laughs> no, nah, you're good. That's that's why you're the guest. I love it. And it um it gets me like this kind of talking is uh where I tended to get myself in trouble uh when I was still preaching cuz I I don't know, whenever I first started encountering like strong resistance to Christian nationalism, um I kind of latched onto that and ran my mouth about it as much as I could. And so that's kind of um, has always been one of my things. But this when you're talking about this, like providential language and such like that, that's been so connected to much of how people talk about, like the the myth of America. Right. This, you know, providential city on a hill, you know, God is on our side kind of thing. And then when that gets married to the state, like you said, you can use it to justify all of your crazy actions because you know, we're the good guys. God is on our side. So it doesn't matter that we're the largest arms dealer in the world. It doesn't matter that, you know, when I pay my taxes, they're going to kill people like mm, whatever. Um, and so I think for me, that's one of the major reasons why I am not interested in the kind of Christianity that I grew up in, because I don't want, I don't want to be tied to those kind of things. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. then, um, and I think perhaps there are other people like me um and so when they like for example i know one of the number one cited reasons for for people my age leaving the church and the the you know um to the capacity that they are had to do with the election of of donald trump and the like mind-bogglingness of being like wait a minute this is the opposite of everything that you guys have been telling us to do our entire life growing up and now what's up with this and so I think maybe perhaps this movement of people stepping away from the church is actually more so a prophetic critique, um, to use biblical language, of a failed church, a failed Christianity. Um, and that's, yeah, at, like, the Christian nationalism, like this is, uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm making connections and seeing how, you know, the work of Bonhoeffer does fit so perfectly into this kind of uh cultural moment and um yeah i guess he bonhoeffer raises the question then of this like religionless christianity and so maybe a good question for you would be like with all of this you know in mind how like what do you think is the future <laughs> of the faith like it appears that it's a failing thing at least in this country um and like what I don't know, what kind of uh, you know, maybe advice or something like that would Bonhoeffer give in regards to a religionless Christianity, um, kind of in this cultural moment we find ourselves in? Yeah, uh, you know, once again, it's a great question. Um so I'll go back to it. Uh, there's so many thoughts just flood through my mind because I wrote a, a whole book with that title. 
Um, and, and one of the things that, um, you know, Christians, okay, see if this sounds familiar to you, Josh. Um, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Right? Right. Very uh, much so, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, I heard that too. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, just the re- reality of it is that Christianity is a religion too. And we, we try to want to, you know, oh, religion is this series of practices, beliefs, et cetera, whatever. And, and but Christianity is not that. We want to protect ourselves from saying that Christianity experiences the same historical contingencies, um, the same sort of dead ends, the same kind of power struggles and political fights and and quest for power that occur within religion itself. We want to try to protect Christianity from that. Bonhoeffer says you can't. You can't protect Christianity from that. Now, I, I, I can't take time to nuance this particular distinction, but let me just say at this point that Bonhoeffer says, look, Christianity is a religion. And it's the religion of Christianity that has moved Germany to where it is. When you have fully a third of the German Christians and the German church willing to follow Hitler into the bunker all the way, then you haven't looked at your own anti-Semitism and how 2,000 years of development within Christianity itself, the development of anti-Semitism led directly to the Nazis. And and I I teach a class in um, in all of this, um, and I can sort of show you where Luther's writings are invoked specifically um, to undergird his position as a cultural hero who hated Jews, and it could, you know they use a lot of uh, Luther's quotes from uh, this tract on the thieving and murdering hordes of Jews or something in their lives. Um, I may have that mistranslated, but but uh, they reprint these, they send them out, and Crystal Knot, um, you know, the night where all the Jewish synagogues and shops and everything, the night of the broken glass is destroyed, happens on the eve of Luther's birthday. It's not an accident. So, so you're sitting there and, and you're trying to figure out what is the future for this institution, much like you're sitting there, they're going, what kind of future does the church in America have if they're willing to slave after, you know, power? Or, in the words of uh, my friend on uh, Twitter, Bonhoeffer's child, uh, will suck at the mummified teat of Archbishop Mueller, Reichbishop Mueller, who was Hitler's Reichbishop. What kind of future does the church have? Um, and I think what you're going to see is that church is going to die. Because, you know, like you said, people who still care about this stuff, i.e. more often than not the young, people are going to look at that and go, why the frick would I want to be a part of that? You know, you told me character matters, but evidently not when it comes to you're having power. Um, Do you not believe in moral suasion Uh, enough or do you have to have the levers of government to enforce your morality on other human beings sounds to me like you want the power of government to enforce that vision on others rather than being out there persuading 
making connections, building relationships that would cause people to live a different way or different life. So there's a certain sense in which it may well be that historians 50 years from now will look back and say Donald Trump killed American evangelicalism. He just killed it. Um, and and maybe it deserves to die. Because if, if they're going to follow after, you know, that, then they deserve to die. You know, it's so clear to, to some of us that that sort of temptation narrative, I will give you all the powers of the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. That dynamic, you know, I'm not looking at this as history, but I'm looking at it as a kind of powerful narrative um, that the gospel writer is using to show how seductive power is to the causes of the spirit. Um, so, so you have this situation then where Bonhoeffer is sitting there and, and he asks himself the question, who is Jesus Christ for us today? And what do we really believe? Believe enough that we're willing to stake our lives on it. So it's not that he's, once again, he's Christ, his center is Christ. That, that, I think, stays consistent throughout his entire life. But as he's sitting there in the ashes of, of Nazi Germany, of Europe, of World War II, um, and toward the end of World War II in the letters and papers from prison, he's saying, of what significance is any of this? Where is the church found? And, and he says, I can't find it anywhere. And he says, because the church has failed to bring the beyond of Christ into the present concrete historical reality in which we live. And he says that reality would be far different than what the church is manifesting. So he does say, interestingly enough, um, and I find this very fascinating, he says we must, and he, he goes back to life together um, and uh, sort of the, the uh, notions of monastery and community in these letters and papers from prison. And he says, we must recover the arcane disciplines. And that's a obscure phrase and everything. So I'm going to sort of just give a quick down and dirty take. If I were giving a scholarly lecture, this would come out different. But we must recover the, the disciplines that form and shape our identity in a, in a different way than the state does. The state wants to form you as a good citizen of the state, to be obedient to the state, to pay your taxes to the state, to support whatever the state does. But Christ, in these arcane disciplines, and he mentions, you know, prayer and fasting and Eucharist and, and other things like this, that forms your identity in a different way. You know, now that's a very powerful idea, right? Um, because then I'm being shaped and formed to be a social agent differently than what the state wants me to be. Now, sometimes I may align with the state. Sometimes if the state is performing good, right? Um, now, this is threatening to all of those Christians who proof text Romans 13, 1 through 7. You know, this can be very threatening, you know, because what I'm saying now is Bonhoeffer calls us to a form of disciplined life that shapes us in a different way. I'm going to give you a concrete example of this. Um, so a number of years ago, I was coming back from a, a conference in Poland, and uh, I had to route through London and do an overnight. 
So I do, one of my favorite things in London is go to St. Paul's because love St. Paul's and it's even song. And so I, I got there early because I just like to sit in that cathedral and I'm sitting there and, and they arranged the chairs to kind of be a semicircle circle. And I'm looking at the incense, you know, wafting up uh, through the cathedral and and I'm, I'm letting my senses sort of take this in. You know, a lot of times Christians don't let this do this. And I'm just sort of entering into this contemplative moment. And I, I start to observe all of the people coming in and they're dressed in different clothing from different parts of the world. And there's a woman in, with a child in a wheelchair and, you know, all kinds of different people, all ethnicities, all the diversity was really struck. It struck me. And I'm sitting there. The homily is eminently forgettable. Um, I don't remember what was said or anything. But what I do remember is that as we got up to take communion, the kindness, the deference shown uh, of these people in this space to one another, uh, the big tatted, you know, uh, bouncer from, you know, the World's End Tavern up in Camden Town is stepping aside to let the woman with the wheelchair daughter go to the front to be able to have Eucharist. The, the white three-piece banker suit guy is stepping aside to let the woman in African attire, you know, go go up. There, there was a kind of... Um, care in that moment for the other right and and i was and i was struck with this that this is the table of our resistance that eucharist um, becomes a moment a profound moment of not just a ritual or something that i do but a profound moment of participation in a table that does not exclude others in a table that that is offered to all to come and and feast and a table that refuses to see the other as enemy. If I'm at this table, how can I justify bombs um, to you and your table in another space of the world? How can I visit violence on you? Um, and and there was a just this I don't know I don't want to call it mystic moment but but it it is stuck with me um, in my gut you know in a way that you know I, I can live in my head a lot um, but this stuck with me in in the very core of my being that it's in Eucharist that I find the space that I am being recreated so when you talk about the church and leaving the church. And I totally understand that. What I can't leave is the space of the table. And, and what, why I ended up sort of moving back into the liturgical churches more than the Pentecostal charismatic sort of found myself attracted more to the Episcopal church was that I knew that I was always going to get Eucharist every, every time I went, right? And so that in that moment, that becomes a radical revisioning of my life as opposed to the life that the state wants to enculturate me in.
And these culture wars are being fought in a desire to have the state define you, not Jesus. Yeah, I that'll fucking preach, man. <laughs> that is yes, the I love that the Eucharist is resistance. And I, I I told this story on here before. Um, but I think it, it it fits here what you're saying. There was um last summer I had the privilege of speaking as like the keynote speaker for like a, a summer camp for high school students um in uh, North Carolina, actually. Um, a part of like the disciples of Christ denomination. And their whole big thing is communion, right? That's like what they kind of center themselves on. And I had a moment where I was served communion by two transgender students, two non-binary students. And sorry, it, (laughs) it makes me emotional to think about it, but like the that it like that moment was an act of resistance right like to have the people that are being told you do not belong your lives do not matter you shouldn't even exist to be the people that are at the table serving communion serving the eucharist like that there is power to that and um that yeah i when i uh have attended church um there's a, an Episcopal church right down the road from me. Um, and I looked him up and saw that the uh, the priest was a gay black woman. And I was like, I'm going there. <laughs> and that uh, experience of communion every week uh, is always my favorite, my favorite part. Um, and I think, yeah, as, as you're just, you know, as you're speaking it, it's the thing that has got, like, when I used to preach regularly, the kingdom of God. And I know we can problematize calling it the kingdom of God, but for sake of conversation, the kingdom of God um, was always the thing that I would return to. And because within the kingdom of God, I saw there were no, you know, arbitrary borders, right? Like if you look at the globe, it's not like there's actual lines drawn on it. And the kingdom of God doesn't respect the borders. Uh, the kingdom of God doesn't respect the culture wars, the gen- whatever, like the kingdom of God. Um, is a place of radical inclusion for all and stands in direct opposition to the principalities and powers of darkness that be the powers, you know, that be. And so um, I don't know. I, I think it's a good, a good a place as any to, to end, but to, to see that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm hung up on this, this image of the Eucharist as a, uh, a, a form of resistance. Um, there's a there's a great book by yeah. uh, William Cavanaugh called Torture and Eucharist about his um, experience. Uh, I think it was in Peru. Um, anyway, uh, he has some he has some really deep and profound insights about the way that Eucharist functioned as a space of resistance to the principalities and powers of the state. And uh, if you want to get a, a a movie example of this, watch the movie Romero, um, where Oscar Romero, uh, played by Raul Julia, um, in the movie, I think it's very dis- distinctly set up by the the director that Eucharist becomes that place of direct resistance to the state by the claims of Christ, right? 
two two really great places that have you know sort of you know helped my thinking along with Bonhoeffer give me concrete examples. But I do want to finish. I, I know we you said you know we finished, but let me just finish with this. Yeah, for Bonhoeffer think- for Bonhoeffer, religionless Christianity is not a Christian. You know, the Christianity of religion can form a wall. And and here is the wall of our doctrine, maybe even our practice, um, our our cultural baggage, um, and I'm not saying it's that that tradition is not important. Tradition is our touchstone. We go back and, you know, how do we think about the Trinity today? How do we think about these things in this particular context? But even our very doctrine of God, which can be a religious doctrine can prevent us from an actual encounter with the thing itself. So oftentimes Christianity can be the very thing that prevents us from the encounter with God. And and what Bonhoeffer in this moment is experiencing when he's stripped of all the other stuff, um, he is encountering a reality that he had not encountered before, I think. And this is why it grieves me so much when Eric Metaxas says if Bonhoeffer were alive today, he would disavow the writings and letters and papers from prison. I think that is one of the greatest blasphemies that Metaxas can do to the legacy of Bonhoeffer because this comes at the culmination of his life and he's understanding that religionless Christianity could be a form of Christianity it helps us break through all of that and allows the beyond to be present in the reality of this world. Yeah, I, man, I love it. I love that, that language, the, the presence of the beyond <laughs> to be here. Um, yeah. Present and active. Uh, well, that's Bonhoeffer's yeah. language. Yeah. That's good. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to come up with that on my own. <laughs> right on. Ah <laughs> uh, man, well, Jeff, this has been uh, a ton of fun, and I'm just you know now more excited than I was uh, prior to our conversation for uh, the class that you're doing um, with Trip. I know that uh, there's what like uh, four or five other scholars involved, and all kind of talking about Bonhoeffer and service to things like. Um, I think it was like, like incarceration, ecology, uh, racism, and and I know there's there's a few others. Yeah, yeah, congregational life, uh, interfaith yeah. relations. Uh, right. You know, I mean, the, the conversations will probably be wi- wide ranging, but these are some of the most uh, well known scholars in Bonhoeffer today. Um, uh, Jenny uh, is the. Um, She's the chair of the Bonhoeffer Society uh, in the American Academy of Religion. Um, And Lori is her vice president. And Jenny left teaching in McCormick Seminary. And now she's a Episcopal uh, priest studying for the priesthood. I think she's passed her exams um, in in Atlanta. Um, And she is profoundly... uh, immersed in prison ministry so yeah so these are these will be great people with great trajectories um and i i think that your listenership um would enjoy it 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes uh, to sign up for the class to make it easy. Um, and it is donation based, right? Trip likes the joke. It's any anything from zero to one million. One million, you know, nothing above one million. Uh, will you guys accept? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, Trip has to make his, <laughs> you know, Trip Trip has to make his living on this, and you know, so I myself, I live on social security now, so I don't totally want the state to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> right there are still some pragmatic <laughs> uh implications there for sure good deal well listeners seriously uh hop on this class it's going to be a lot of fun uh there's like a facebook community page that's a part of it there's like live uh q a sessions with yourself and trip and uh whatever the scholar for that week is um it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm going to be hanging out there, which maybe is a deterrent for some people to come listen. But uh, and 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 Trip and I just cut a, a five reasons to go Bonhoeffer. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was I, a good. That was fun. That was a good. Yeah, I listened to that yesterday when I was uh, painting a shed. <laughs> so I made my made my painting a lot more enjoyable. But I'll I'll be sure to link that one uh, there as well. Um, and I can can I link people uh, to you somehow? Like website or maybe one of your books you like. Uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Jeffrey CPU. Um, and I'm also on Facebook. Sounds so. Yep. But I, I, I behave on Facebook and, and act poorly on Twitter. Nice. That's that sounds about right. <laughs> In general, I go after I go after Theo bros, but they never seem to respond. So, huh. well, Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> guess I'll have to guess I'll have to be a little more, you know. <laughs> oh, I dig it. Well, listeners, thank you uh, so much for hanging out. As always, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, hopefully some more conversations with you in the future. And, Absolutely, uh, Josh. Happy to yeah. do it, and <laughs> and happy brewing. Yes, happy brewing. All right, <laughs> listeners, uh, go in peace, guys. 